are listening to Tech Reads, interviews with emerging technology thought leaders. Our sponsor is SoftTech, the premier technology trade association that has been serving Northern Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo County since 1997. Our mission is to create soft tech moments where people connect, explore ideas, and create new business opportunities. Learn more at softec.org. Hello, everyone. This is Brian Schwartz from Tech Reads, the podcast supported by Soft Tech, which is a great uh, association here on the Central Coast, uh, which is there to connect great minds in technology and business. Um, Bob Demusho has joined us from Alaska. He's actually the president of SoftTech. Um, and I've got a room full of guests here to join us and chime in on the conversation and listen to Rob. Uh, Rob was kind enough to send me a copy of his book, The Spring of Sight. Both myself, Bill, and Bob have been reading the book, so we're familiar with it uh, a little bit more. But I know that this is such a fast world, changing world that Rob's got some updates for us. And we've all been indoctrinated in all of the craziness that's happening with AI. But I think computer vision is something that hasn't been getting a lot of talk, but it's a very important subset of AI. And Rob's going to enlighten us a little bit more. And um, this this is being recorded live, but it will be published as a podcast uh, in the near future. Uh, so Rob, why don't you just tell us really briefly about yourself and why you wrote the book? Sure. I'd like to think I have a sort of interesting and, uh, you know, diverse background, uh, spanning from the film industry and now into uh, the world of AI and uh, programming, specifically computer vision. Uh, I spent more than a decade actually as a worker in film production, like on set, in editing booths in New York City, you know, in the wee hours, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., uh, you know, ingesting footage for shows you might recognize, like Billions, um, Spike Lee shows, uh, a, a feature called Triple Frontier, <laughs> um, and then kind of got bored of uh, some of the tedious elements of work in uh, the night shifts in the bowels of uh, Hollywood, and wanted to learn to code to automate some of the sort of uh, repetitive, tedious tasks that uh, are sort of to be found in those, uh, those like Hollywood backrooms. And that's where my career has led me. I've been the data science lead at Butterworks, a startup that analyzes uh, social video data for entertainment companies like Viacom, CBS, Netflix, Hulu, Spotify. Um, and yeah, I, I don't I want to knock on wood, but because I'm uh, I might start a new job opportunity soon. But in the meantime, I'm still promoting uh, my book, The Spring of Sight. Thank you for mentioning it and for digging into it. I'm excited to uh, share with the world more about you know what the proliferation of mature computer vision means for us. Um, and I'll go straight into the. Uh, oh yes. No, I was going to say if you wanted to move over here, if you need to hear better, it might be. You're welcome to come sit over here if you want. All right, it's working. All right, sorry, we're just having some volume difficulties. All right. Um, yeah, Rob, no, our pleasure. And uh, it's it's just all, you know, you're, you're in an important conversation as the world is changing very quickly and the issue of ethics comes up and responsibility and just are we able to keep up with the technology? I hope we got another uh, person to add to the stream. Hello, Courtney. Hey. Uh, so Rob just introduced himself, but Rob, why did you, what, what motivated you to write the book and what were you, do you hope people kind of walk away with 
after reading it? Sure. The short and long of it is uh, this suite of technologies is here to stay, right? It's not going anywhere. <laughs> um, it's built into our phones, our urban infrastructure, the concert venues we like to attend, uh, whatnot. So, and it can be used, it can be used against you or for you. It can help you classify whatever radiological images you might be generating when you visit the hospital, um, or it can be used to um, like arrest you under false pretenses. Uh, by lazy law enforcement officials. Um, so it's a double-edged sword, and I don't think enough people are just having healthy conversations about it, and those conversations can lead to good common-sense regulation, uh, which is, of course, a dialogue between um, you know, the people, the constituents of any territory, and uh, the people who make the rules. <laughs> yes, uh, and, I, and it's good, and I think bringing... Uh, somebody who has a lot of experience in the technology field, you know, a younger person and sort of bridging some of the things that we don't understand as the older folks in the room um, is really important to have people like you sort of kind of reveal some of the pitfalls and things that we're not even aware of. And quite honestly, as my own parents, you know, they're the targets for a lot of the scammers and the fact that they just don't understand this world and this, the, Gamers out there understand this and take advantage of people like that. So I think it's important for your generation to educate us and protect us from getting taken. Right on. Yes. Um, there's a chapter in my book called AI Snake Oil, and it's about how to protect yourself from uh, the scams, the uh, kind of like posers, if you will, because there is such a big wave of uh, AI uh, software companies. And so few of them actually use like machine learning or like neural networks um, <laughs> in their software suite. A lot of people just export work to other humans in like India and say like, we use AI, but of course, like uh, another human brain is like the most powerful AI <laughs> you, you can come across today. Um, so you got to ask yourself whenever you're throwing money at uh, a new you know, AI tool, what's, what kind of problems does this solve for me? Uh, Maybe you're like a recruiting manager at a technology company or a film company or any company. You're, a, you're responsible for hiring folks. You might encounter a product that claims to be able to score candidates uh, based on a 15 or 30 second video. Have your, have your job applicants send in a short video and we'll tell you how adventurous or empathetic or intelligent they are uh, on a zero to five scale. And it's like, how could you, how could you possibly do that? Like we, sure, we can classify facial expressions like this is a smile, you know, like, yes, great. And this is a frown. <laughs> You're good at doing that. Computers can do that too now, but you can't have a 15 to 30 second conversation with me and know for a fact whether or not I'd make a good job candidate you know so like there's no that data isn't there in the interaction so there's what i'm saying is uh you know when you're evaluating an ai product it might be snake oil if uh if it can perform miracles like that <laughs> um, if you can't do it in you know 60 to 120 minutes then a computer can't do it in 30 seconds 
Well, and do you think it's going to be used for discrimination, like unknowingly, but discriminating against people who might be qualified but not possess the attributes that the AI system is geared towards? Certainly. A startup like that one um, isn't going through any kind of vetting process by, you know, like a recognized entity or board of any kind. It's just like, hey, our product claims to be able to do this. Um, watch, you can feed it a video and look, it spits out numbers. But where's the proof that the numbers actually correspond to like that candidates, you know, adventurousness or empathic, you know, empathy score, like <laughs> there's no ground truth for that. And it's probably just totally random. And uh, it probably performs worse. Like it probably scores people of color just like worse because maybe they don't have as much training data on people of color in their data sets. And that's a recurring theme in computer vision. It's like, it doesn't have a mind of its own. You know, it's not going to like become sentient and like inhabit your brain and take over. But when people train a computer vision classifier to distinguish between, okay, cat, dog, you know, horse, um, it's also going to learn that, oh, so frequently, the thing in the kitchen wearing a kitchen apron is a woman. So when you show it like a man in the kitchen wearing a cooking apron, it might still say woman. And that's like, now your computer vision classifier is, is sort of sexist. <laughs> so you see that kind of thing a lot. It's, there's bias in the training set, certainly. Yeah, because it's using a limited set of data. And like you said, there's a lot of minor differences and things it's not going to pick up on. So the false positives are going to be rampant. Right. So from a, from a recruiting tool, I mean, it's clear that that should be a red flag if companies are using that, that we need to ask those questions and understand where the criteria they're using. Um, what other like fears do you have as far as computer vision being dependent upon too much? Yeah, uh, before we go into more fears, I want to just sprinkle in a little happy, you know, okay. stardust and, Good idea. and say that like in medicine, it might be irresponsible not to use computer vision in a lot of domains because it can outperform whole boards of doctors in certain classification tasks. Um, if we can save healthcare providers time in the clinic, that's huge because our healthcare system is just like sagging and broken already. Like our healthcare workers are overworked and underpaid and anything we can do to sort of like optimize processes in that clinical setting are very welcome. Right. So if we can feed whole slide radiological images to an algorithm and have it say to a certain degree of certainty, like, yeah, that is cancerous and that's benign and that's cancerous and that's benign and that's benign and that's, then that saves a radiologist a lot of time having to like study stuff. But we know the best results come from a hybrid of like having the human and the algorithm you know, work in collaboration, just speeding up experts with those automated processes is sort of the, uh, the sweet spot. Um, so, but I am afraid, you know, for other, applications, right? Like facial recognition is uh, one area that's brought with controversy and for good reason. It's a, it's a touchy subject. We like to have privacy in uh, 
in the United States. We are, you know, <laughs> a private people sometimes at home. Uh, and we sacrifice some of that when we buy devices like uh, Nest cameras. Uh, Nest cameras are cool because they give you a sense of control over your space. Uh, they're like, you know, do-it-yourself surveillance systems for your garage, your front door, you know, your digital doorbell, whatnot. But now we're starting to look at questions like, whose footage is that? When there's a crime across the street and your home camera picks up on that, do the police get to, you know, submit a warrant and get access to your personal home video footage and go digging through it? And this is, this is real. This is happening in the United States today. Is that we have a case where someone, was, someone got a warrant for some Nest footage and for the, the house across the street. And, uh, th but they started going through all of the footage, including inside this person's house, like in their living room, in their kitchen. And it's like, no, the crime happened across the street. There's no reason you need to be. <laughs> Why are you looking in my kitchen? You know, like that's, that's preposterous. So there's this question of who owns and how do we anonymize and protect ourselves in, uh, in a world where, yeah. And isn't the UK under like super amount of surveillance already compared to like the US? Like there's cameras everywhere there and pretty much everything is being recorded. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so London is the surveillance capital of the world, you could say. There are so many cameras in London. I forget the exact figure. I, I quoted it in my book, but it's in the tens of thousands of cameras. Uh, and it's like you can't reasonably expect to leave your home without being caught on one of these cameras. So there was a lot of talk about implementing uh, retroactive facial recognition for solving like historical crimes with historical footage and running new face recognition algorithms on that. Um, and that's just like back and forth in the legal domain every day. Um, in the United States, we have the case of Clearview AI. So my, my sort of uh, journalistic idol in this domain is Kashmir Hill. She writes to the New York Times and she's on the beat of uh, you know, what's going on with, with Clearview, especially a company that was in stealth mode for a while, but they scraped data, they scraped images, meaning they, they kind of just downloaded without permission um, people's faces from the popular social media networks, the LinkedIn's, Facebook's, Instagram, Snapchat's of the world, et cetera. So they had billions of images. Uh, yes, Courtney. Just a quick question, because I got background noise. How do I mute my own audio so you guys can't hear my house? I can do it. It's done, Courtney. Just raise your hand if you want to speak. And cut me off if I'm just way, way off on a tangent. But No, no, this is, this is good. I heard about the Clearview, but I didn't know the details of it all. They've got all our faces. You know, <laughs> They're trying to license their excellent AI uh, face recognition tool to law enforcement departments and they've succeeded uh, in the past. They've won a lot of contracts with like local police departments who just kind of willy-nilly take footage from the local you know, gas station, feed it into Clearview's technology and it'll pop out uh, an identity, you know, someone's name and their address, or not their address, but like someone's name so they can like do further investigative work. And, and this has been wildly contentious, right? It's like, first of all, with scraping, like, the fact that you know your your face print, your uh, 
biometric data, this you know, space between your eyes and nose and the shape of your mouth, this stuff is unique to you. It's like your DNA almost, but it's just out there on the internet. And they collected it all and they built this massive data set. Um, and they're, they're leveraging it now. And there's no regulation around that, at least in most places. Well, and there are communities now. I know the one I grew up in that when you drive into town, there's only maybe eight ways to drive into the city. There's cameras and it says your license plate has just been recorded. You can't do anything to stop them from doing it, but they know when you drive into their town and when you drive out and they're able to keep tabs. And this happens to be a suburb of Oakland, California. So they know the moment somebody drives into that town and if there's a crime committed uh, I mean, I think it, the people who live there feel more protected, but at the same time, you're sort of also being watched. They know when you leave town, they need to know when you come back. And I think, Rob, the, the concern is that information is also accessible to hackers. Like, we might trust the organization that's taking it, but, but do you trust them to hold it securely? And that part is kind of scary. That's a great question, yeah. Yeah, and Apple has done a kind of a good job of like protecting their brand identity by, you know, posturing themselves as like, oh yeah, we keep your data safe. And they might try to leverage that when they, you know, release their own self-driving car. They're claiming like theirs is going to have uh, the ability to recognize you as you walk up to the car and like unlock itself and you know, <laughs> adjust the seat and the mirrors to fit your biometric profile. Um, but you're right. The flip side is now, you know, your everyday movements are being tracked. And so you, you don't have that reasonable expectation of privacy. So maybe that affects your behavior as a citizen. Like you're more likely to be a tame, you know, denizen and not like a revolutionary if you don't like the society you live in. Uh, you see this in, in Moscow, the Moscow Metro. Uh, I'll get to you, Bob. In the Moscow Metro, there's something called face pay. And you can register a photo of your face, link it to your bank account, and boom, instead of like swiping, you know, your payment card, you just walk up and it sees you and it says, yep, that's, that's Brian Schwartz. Uh, let's charge his debit card and boom, the turnstile's open and you can go. It's very convenient. And of course, the, the sacrifice is in your, uh, your privacy, right? So when an anti-Kremlin rally was happening, uh, this journalist went to board the Metro and I don't know that he had even registered on FacePay, but they had his picture from a social media website. And when he went to ride the Metro, the police just like nabbed him before he could go cover this, this anti-Kremlin rally. He was just a journalist. He's trying to exercise free speech um, and criticize his, the society he's living in. And, you know, facial recognition hampered that uh, in this case. So that's that's probably the most ethically fraught you know angle on computer vision is like it takes away from our privacy so we need to do a lot of building of common sense regulations like they're doing in uh in massachusetts um, to kind of make it best of both worlds right like it, it's good to catch the bad guys when they are really bad guys and when we can really catch them and not just other dark-skinned people who look like them, right? Like, <laughs> it's, we don't, I laugh, but it's serious. Like, it, we can't be just arresting random people because they look like other people. Like, that's that's very late. We all have a doppelganger out there. Right, right, uh, yeah. Bob, you got a question? Well, I'm curious, the, 
you know, the, what you're talking about sounds an awful lot like the face recognition on my Apple phone. <laughs> so if anyone has a database that, that is dangerous, it's Apple. But, but how is that any different than someone putting out a general description of someone and them arresting based on a general description? At least it's more accurate. Uh, I mean, I, I get the privacy thing, but quite frankly, you know, I think we've lost our privacy to a large degree. You can't go from here to the store in Alaska without being on 50 cameras. Uh, so, you know, I think the, the old adage of, you know, you have no privacy, get over it is kind of true. It's kind of a, you know, chasing things after the fact. But, you know, databases like Apple's, which are very highly refined, uh, you know, they take really quality picture and store it and they have it. And so, you know, how do we trust, you know, how do we get to trust Apple? How do we know that they're operating in our best behalf? Yeah, it's true that like we've probably sacrificed a lot of our uh, privacy in a lot of ways already just by participating in social media websites. Um, it's like we've all sort of uploaded our fingerprints to the public internet, basically. Um, and we can't really undo that. So that's unfortunate. But there are many of us, especially the new generation, who choose to remain, um, to hold on to their uh, you know, online identity. Uh, it, we want it to live in a world where it is possible to maintain that semblance of, of anonymity, um, if even for short periods of time, like going to the grocery store. Uh, as far as the iPhone, and you're right, like it's, isn't it cool that we can unlock our phones just by pointing it at our face? Uh, the key is that I think Apple, I could be wrong about this, but I believe Apple devices like the iPhone, they keep your face print data siloed to just that device. I don't know that they upload it to any centralized server. Um, that's one way to keep that data safe is just to never send it back to base, if you will, back to headquarters is just to have it encrypted like on your device. So it's protected by, you know, your login on your phone. Like you do have to like unlock the phone and in what? order to, to gain access to that data. And it's like encrypted on the device. It's secured by our trust in Apple doing that because none of us really know that. Um, yeah, there, there's what they say they do. And they, you know, it's our sort of collective trust in, in Apple as a consumer. Yeah society right like well, we, not just apple though i mean it, it it's this clear data obviously scraped linkedin right and that violated linkedin's terms of service right and linkedin got very mad about it and tried to you know sent them a number of stern letters <laughs> you know strongly worded letters but that data has left linkedin right like when you upload photos to linkedin it's, it's a public place essentially it's it, it is maybe what we thought of as like a sort of gated community, but you know, it's like, it's like they flew the drone through our gated community and took pictures of everyone, right? Like, <laughs> um, if you will. Um, so yeah, that, but that's, uh, that's a good point that like, in order to keep our biometric data secure, um, you know, you wanna be able to spot people committing crimes on the street, uh, but you don't wanna, encroach on people's privacy. So what you can do is anonymize these public data uh, video feeds on the fly. Like that face information is just blurred. Um, 
on the traffic cameras on the street. Like, okay, a traffic camera is on the street corner. It sees someone going by. It's blurring their face as they go and only counting perhaps the number of pedestrians that go by or the number of cars that run the red light. Um, you know, we want these like very narrow purpose tools um, and we want them doing exactly what we want them to do and no more. Uh, New York City is the first city, I think, in the country to implement uh, a law where businesses have to post if they are collecting your biometric data at the door. Like the Whole Foods, if they're going to scan your face when you walk in, there has to be a sign on the door that says like, hey, we're collecting your biometric data. Don't come in if you don't want your biometric data harvested you know, for whatever we want to do with it. And maybe they're trying to catch shoplifters or maybe they're going to implement their new, you know, perks program that way. Right. Like <laughs> could be good or bad. Uh, but yeah, the, the question of how to stay anonymous on the street is it should, it should be like opt in, right. Not opt out. But Bill's got a question or comment. Well, it, it, it certainly seems like the challenge of how to find the balance that you're talking about is uh, of premier concern. Because, I mean, technology always rushes ahead of society's ability to adapt to it. And society is always, in general, is always playing catch up. I mean, right now we know there is a film out called Oppenheimer about uh, um, the project that brought about the atomic bomb during World War II. And ever since that time, we as a world culture have been trying to make sure that we don't blow ourselves up uh, that we don't end civilization. So with what you were finding with your research and everything you, you, delve, uh, you have been delving into, are, are you seeing that the, are the I'll, I'll just use the phrase, the, the MIT level software geniuses that are helping to move AI and computer vision and everything forward in this manner, are they feeling that most of their time is being able to be devoted to moving the good aspects of computer vision and AI forward, or are they finding that they are having to spend almost an equal amount of time to prevent the hacking of the system, to prevent the, um, you know, let's say the, the, misuse. the misuse, the negative pull of human behavior from turning things into um, deep banks. Yeah, deep, <laughs> well, very technologically advanced uh, criminal behavior. Um, uh, what have you what have you been feeling where is that balance right now do you have any sense of of that yeah i'll give you an example i spoke with dr ramin hassani at mit's uh computer science ai lab and he has been working on something he calls liquid neural nets which more closely mimic uh, kind of biological processes um, and the idea is to make you know highly performant highly accurate uh, you know computer vision powered systems uh, with kind of simpler parts in a sense. Like if you, if we have the whole brain of the nematode mapped out, like all the interneuronal connections, we have a map of that. Can we build a computer system that's a lot like that and have it learn how to like park a car? <laughs> um, that's what he's up to. And he is, um, he's, he's very concerned about how we're going to regulate this stuff. He, he thinks that even by advancing the research, he's making it easier to regulate because um, neural nets are famous for being sort of inscrutable. Um, they are black box systems. Um, the kind of latest uh, 
flavor, you know, the most advanced version of uh, image recognition systems we have today, they're neural nets, neural networks. That's a type of machine learning algorithm. It's just, um, it's just that once you feed it data and train it and get it you know, making predictions, it's very hard to look under the hood and say like, why did it decide that Brian is going to commit crime again? And instead of being a good guy, uh, it's so these systems, it's important that we're able to look under the hood and analyze them, right? Because when you get your credit score or whatever, you want to be able to say like, oh, here are the factors that impacted your credit score. You made your on-time payments, you, you know, your credit history is, is long and uh, has been around for a while. It's not fair to just be like, you have a bad credit score because I don't know, that's what the machine learning algorithm said. <laughs> so um, Dr. Hassani is interested in making these systems simpler so that we can dissect them and say like, ah, you, you know, the car made the wrong turn here because it was fed this very specific input and we need to give it more examples like that, um, you know, so that it doesn't do that as much. And the same is true with, with facial recognition, with um, you know, self-driving technology, with, with radiological image classification. It's good to make it simpler. Um, the, the more we get, the more we advance scientifically, kind of the simpler it gets actually, paradoxically. We're making these systems like easier and easier to scrutinize and therefore easier to, to analyze and to regulate. Yes, uh, Dina. Um, I was wondering if anybody or if there's any uh, entity who is working on the environmental cost uh, of storing all this data and the computing power required. Right, right, right. Yeah, did you look, in, really... did look into that? Because I, I have heard that and been fearful for that as well, that we're, we're so concerned about saving the environment, yet all this technology comes at a cost to the environment. You know, I think that's true. I have to say, I did not give that much thought for my book. Um, I am more focused on the societal ramifications than the environmental ones. But, you know, I, I like to call myself an environmentalist. And uh, so I, I, I will admit that I should have looked more into that. Because, <laughs> yeah, this is expensive computational stuff, which is, you know, causing carbon emissions somewhere. I was always shocked when I heard about Bitcoin and how damaging to the environment something like Bitcoin could be. Yeah, I, I would like to do some more research on the environmental impact of this stuff. Uh, I think, you know, it's making its way into lower powered devices, like on your phone. You know, your phone is not a huge consumer of the world's energy. Uh, and it can do really powerful computer vision stuff. Like it can count the number of pieces of plywood in a stack of, you know, 200 pieces of plywood. Um, it can recognize your face. Uh, it, it's not the biggest problem. Um, but stuff like the whole world using chat GPT uh, via the Bing browser is probably like a bigger problem right now. Uh, I, I haven't profiled these things. I don't know exactly how they compare. But the great question, I will say like, there, there's a whole other book to be written on, or there that has already been written on the environmental impact of uh, running all these kind of computationally expensive operations. Is it sustainable? Uh, yes. Is it that's the question, right? Yeah. And honestly, I don't know. I'm I'm comfortable saying I that's not my expertise. Mm -hmm. 
then Understood. Uh, you got to ask Thanks, Donald for that one. <laughs> Bob's got another question, Bob. Well, I'm curious if Rob is getting the questions in the chat as oh. well as people raising their hand or if Brian's paying attention to the chat. No, thank you. Thank uh, you. Thank you. You might want to pick up some of the questions that are over there as well. Uh, but I, I'm curious, Courtney. In, your, in your medical section of, of the book, in, in whatever chapter it was, uh, you, you make a comment of it giving back to the medical technicians uh, time that they can then spend with, with patients. That seems naive to me. I think that the management of those medical pr practices are going to add more appointments to the doctor's if they see that there's available time. And, and I think that the, the real debate really is, is how we balance the positives and the negatives here because AI and vision, from my opinion, is simply a tool. And the question of whether it's a good tool or a bad tool depends on who holds the end of the hammer. And so, you know, th that's really what this boils down to. And you know, to give our facial recognition out there is not a problem if all the actors are good actors, but they're not. And not all of these, I mean, these companies, chat GPT as an example, started their business off by scraping the internet, which is stealing copyright, which is exactly the way Google started their business. So that's not, not without precedence. <laughs> but I'm curious. You bring up a great point. Yeah, it's like, is it, more like a hammer or is it more like a screwdriver and you know how incumbent is it on the creator of the tool to uh, design it in such a way that suggests positive use cases because even you know a, a terrible actor can take something that's more like a screwdriver and make it work like a gun right like <laughs> um, so what looks like a hammer to you might look more like a screwdriver to me this is also true um, so companies like adobe have to strike this balance uh, companies like Adobe who make like the Photoshop uh, and Adobe Premiere video editing software of the world for a long time, they've had the capability to just give it a feature where you can synthesize voices, right? Like, wouldn't it be nice if I could just, you know, fix this bad audio in my podcast by using AI to like fill it in, but then where do you draw the line? What if I can just synthesize whole new Obama speeches or you know, whole new like you know, Joe Biden speeches, um, and and then we're at deep fakes. Now we're so, and then Adobe is responsible for letting people make you know these harmful disinformation uh, pieces. So they have to decide subjectively like how much they're going to enable their users. And they purposely, I, I spoke to a product manager at Adobe, and he says they purposely abstain from adding certain features because they don't want to be the first ones to, to enable. enable the masses to do harmful things. Uh, in fact, they, they would rather never be the ones to enable us <laughs> to hurt each other. Um, so, and it's, it's part of capitalism, right? It's like your product is not going to sell well if it's getting, you know, a bunch of flack in the press and then it's going to draw scrutiny and regulation. Um, so you don't want to be too heavily regulated either uh, as a private company because uh, that's, that's bad news uh, for you and your shareholders. So we have these mechanisms, right? This is this cat and mouse game. Like you said, it's like the technology outpaces regulation, regulation cuts up, catches up, and then we come up with new ways to sort of thwart those regulations and get around them. 
you know, we've, we've seen this since the, the industrial revolution, right? The, the Luddites, the followers of Ludd, um, they were mad about the uh, conditions in the textile mills when the, the machines came in and started sort of displacing some of the work. Um, there were like untrained apprentices. There were people with, yeah, not up to par training, uh, going to work, people, really young folks. Uh, so they started putting rocks in the machines. They just started breaking the machines because they're, they're angry. And at least once they like burned down the factory because yeah, the machines were causing these, uh, yeah, these sort of hard conversations about like, well, just because there's machines doesn't mean you can stick untrained like youths into the mix and hope they do okay. <laughs> so yes, Courtney, do you have a question? You're unmuted, dear. You're, I'm unmuted, thank you. How do we even broach the subject with people creating these programs for AI tech to keep society safe? Um, about cameras and tech, like the truckers in Canada being restricted from purchasing with their debit cards. I mean, um, it's, I fear that AI is further dividing society and that people who dissent will be punished and canceled and that AI is a tool to help make that happen. Um. Say more. <laughs> go on, go on. There's just the doomsday prediction by Courtney. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at all the censorship <laughs> and information I get in alternative media sources. And I mean, you know, media has been manipulative for decades and decades, but it's really exploded lately. Yeah, it's true that like, the, it's a double-edged sword. Um, yeah, I like double-edged. Uh, you know, like I like it because uh, I can use it for stuff. Like I identify plants in the park with my phone now. You know, right. I just point my camera, and it's like, oh, that's that's a tree. I didn't know its name and when it flowers previously. And I like, like using, you know, like in my browser, I like using the little Chat GPT like summary plugin because maybe I don't want to spend eight minutes reading an article. I just want to spend. 30 seconds reading the summary of that article, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then like, but then on the other end of the spectrum, it's like we have to, we have stopkillerrobots.org, right? Where it's like, hey, maybe we shouldn't set drones loose on the battlefield um, and like allow it to like point weapons at people. Um, <laughs> so there are, there, are, there are two ends of the spectrum. And one is like, ah, colorizing old photos and uh, you know, animating pictures of my ancestors in, in the black and white photos. Like, oh, that's what my grandfather would have looked like if, if I could see like a video of him, you know. And then on the other end, it's like, um, we are creating a police state in Uyghur, China, where people are, are picking cotton and they're not allowed to leave their like home community. And they're using like Google Glass style glasses to like identify people and say like oh this person has like low social credit you know arrest them mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm laughing not to cry uh, <laughs> you know um, so what do we how do we have these conversations it's like let's just uh, try to raise a mentally well society and you know build people who want to do good things with technology and uh, 
not abuse it for you know power or, or money like that's i think that's the crux of it and let's just you know try to knock down the tools that come up to help people do bad things <laughs> yeah i think building awareness is the key and that's what you're doing with this book and with this podcast is is bringing to light things that people may be unaware are happening behind the scenes and some of the specifics around it i i would suggest it it's also saying we all need to to stay alert and stay involved. You know, as society moved forward in years past, when cars came into being, we had to, eventually people had to demand and governments had to, had to provide regulations on the road that govern the way we drive. Stoplights, stop signs, uh, lanes to pass and not pass. Without that, we would have had a continual, just crazy, you know, free-for-all chaos out there. Well, I think it's going to require groups of us in individual areas that are affected by this to pull together. A a current example is the fact that right now we're probably all aware that there are a number of strikes going on across our nation. Uh, The Teamsters just just formed um, uh, a deal with UPS, United Parcel Service, Right now, the Writers Guild and the Actors Guild, Screen Actors Guild, are on strike against the studios. Because one of the things that, as a group, we all realize we've got to take a stand on or we're going to be taken to the cleaners. And since my background as a writer, director, producer, and sometime actor um, has been, I have watched how this has functioned over 40 years. And we know that the studios have a desire to create widgets that they can make a lot of money on. And by widgets, I mean something that can be easily replicated. In this case, they would like it to be movies, television series, whatever. But they know that the original product is a concept, an idea, a story idea. It's very hard to just keep regulating that. But they have seen over the years that television series can be made to fall into somewhat of a formulaic pattern. And if that's the case, they are feeling, hey, if we can feed a number of, uh, just pick the name of a series, of such and such a series that unfolds week to week to week or episode to episode with a similar format, if we can feed those scripts into an AI-generated computer system... Yeah, it will start spitting out episodes that will be close enough that we can continue to make a lot of money off of that. And most of the audience will not be able to tell the difference. Sure, there'll be some that say, hey, you know, it's not as sharp as it used to be, so I'm going to watch something else. But enough will be watching to generate the kind of profits the studios want, and they will say okay, we don't have to deal with those pesky writers anymore, or we don't have to deal with those pesky actors. This is why the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild know this is a do-or-die moment in the entertainment business just in that one regard. So I'm extrapolating that thought and saying all of us citizens of the world in our own little silos silos, need to make sure we are banded together and say, Mm -hmm. hey, we need strong, intelligent regulation to protect all of us in whatever that silo is. Helmet, you had a question earlier. Well, I had a technical question. If you have looked into self-driving uh, technology for cars, you know, my own experience is I'm driving self-driving almost now for two years, mostly the time. 
90%. And I would say it works to 95% perfect. About 5% going wrong. <laughs> going wrong. <laughs> and uh, Tesla has decided uh, lately to move the whole self-driving input for the car visual. It's all based on cameras. Uh, yes, and he opens his book with about the self-driving oh, okay. car. So definitely, Rob, comment on CV and self-driving vehicles. Oh, was that your question? Oh, yeah, this was basically the question. I want to see uh, not so much the society uh, questioning of bad actors here as like bad working technology. Practical. And uh, which uh, keeps, uh, can bring us in danger as a driver or as another human in traffic that can be run over by a car. Or... Okay, Rob, so chime in on the self driving vehicles and the fact that. Tesla's decision to move to CV. Yeah, so it's always been CV with autonomous vehicles, right? You, even if it's not um, optical cameras, so you have LiDAR, at, you could say that's a form of, of vision, right? Like mapping the environment around the car. I think Tesla is moving to purely uh, visual, visible spectrum cameras, primarily from like a manufacturing standpoint like it's cheaper <laughs> to go without a lidar sensor um, and they're hoping they can solve self-driving uh, with just those visible light cameras and uh, and that's that's wild to me i, I think lidar does better <laughs> and you know once we have more manufacturers with like working lidar autonomous vehicles then we'll build more lidar you know factories right like and it'll get cheaper but uh I, so I'm an idealist. When I wrote the book, I, I thought like self-driving is going to be great because humans make a lot of really arbitrary decisions based on our emotions. You know, we get broken up with and we're driving like as if we're drunk. You know, when we're tired, we drive very poorly. We drive very poorly just like as a people. Um, and computers are not going to drive poorly. Like they're going to do a lot less arbitrary stuff and just abide by systems. Um, and be uh, sort of more rational in that sense. But that only works if like all the cars are self-driving and there are almost no human pilots on the road, um, which just isn't going to happen overnight, right? Like we're, it's almost going to be easier to just build out more public transit infrastructure and uh, do away with the cars. That's kind of the way I've been leaning lately <laughs> um, because it's it's different, right? It's It's a totally different domain when between like, you know, recognizing uh, a tumor as malignant or, uh, or benign, like that can happen, you know, over days or, or weeks if necessary. Um, the car has to decide in an instant whether to slam on the brakes or whether to swerve or what, or, or maybe that's just a mirage on the road. So it's just like a very critical, very time sensitive application. Um, and it's going to take a long time. What's that, Bob? Courtney has been asking a question for a long time. Yes, Courtney, please. I think that um, AI-generated content, whether it's TV shows or uh, articles, um, like I would never use AI to engage with people on social media by sharing uh, how to cook for as preventative medicine because I want it to, my content to be um, flesh and blood. And, and to respond to people, you know, I would never use AI for my business, basically, because my business is my content. So um, 
an aspect of it, an important aspect of it is my content. So um, I think AI is like, because enough people will watch the AI generated shows that it's contributing to the dumbing down, further dumbing down of our society. And we always, we already see such short attention spans and people just wanting to escape and not think for themselves much. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, no, I think uh, touching back on the kind of film industry and the, the SAG-AFTRA uh, and the, the writer's strikes, uh, you know, I haven't seen a feature-length screenplay written by AI that I enjoyed, you know, like, I don't think that you know of. That. <laughs> yeah, like, if someone's sitting on an AI-generated uh, feature-length screenplay and it's good, that's uh, news to me. Um, I, I think it's going to be a while before, you know, like the studios really put their money behind like AI generated uh, screen content. Um, I'm skeptical, but there are narrow applications where it has helped already. Like in, uh, I write about Hollywood test screenings um, where people go and they're paid to watch movies so that uh, before they're released, right? Like during the editing process, like uh, maybe. Uh, Mr. Froelich, you've participated in such like screenings. I don't know. Maybe you can speak to this a little bit. But um, the idea is now there are infrared cameras behind the movie screen watching the audience's faces uh, as they react to certain scenes in the movie. You know, like, oh, did this scene get a lot of laughs? Did this one, did people like, were they scared? Were they jumping in their seats? Um, and it kind of is the best of both worlds in the sense of like, you know, it used to be like sweat conductivity sensors. So your audience members were all like wired up and they're kind of conscious of that, which was distracting. Um, or they had to fill out questionnaires like after the movie. And by then they had already forgotten half the plot and, you know, they had reflected for a while. And so it wasn't really like what they were feeling in the moment. So this is one like very narrow application where like, the cameras behind the movie screens in the test theaters, you know, people are opting into this, they're getting paid for it. And then the studios are collecting all this data. They could do like a hundred screenings at once around the country and have a hundred people in each theater and boom, that's like so many data points. You go invest $50 million in it. Yeah. Well, and that's a very interesting point that you brought out in the, in the book and that you're bringing out now because there is some relevance and some help to, from the standpoint of you, you notice the audience reaction, for instance, in a particular scene, and, and that may generate a sense of, oh, maybe this edit right here at this moment didn't get the reaction that we wanted because of the data that we now have back. So let's change that edit. But here's where a deeper challenge with that kind of uh, CV and, and AI sense goes. We know as writers and directors that sometimes that edit didn't work at that point because the edit either needed to be shorter or longer or the image needed to be juxtaposed with something else or, and this is where the, I think the, the deeper understanding of the computer, and I don't know how they, they get to this, you realize as a storyteller that edit didn't work in scene 57 the way you wanted it to because the setup wasn't strong enough in scene 36. And once you go back and fix the scene 36, and then you screen that for an audience, and you don't change the edit in scene 57, they react exactly the way you wanted them to react, because they were properly set up before. 
Now, how CV or AI gets to know that, that's where I wonder, is that something where human beings will always have an advantage? That's, that's a big question to me, because in that case, we are dealing, especially with movies and television, you are primarily dealing with emotions. Motion pictures are an emotional impact medium. They are not designed to just bring an intellectual message. They can accomplish that, but they are designed with music, with visuals, with dialogue, with interaction of characters to be emotional. How does CV and AI create that on the same level as human beings? I don't, I don't know, but it, that's inter- fascinating to explore. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that like these tools are sort of useless without our uh, intuition as humans, you know, with lived experiences and, uh, you know, <laughs> that sort of craftsmanship or craftspersonship. Uh, certainly, yeah. And some filmmakers have complained that uh, tools like these are used to sort of dull the edges of what should be kind of like edgy material. Like, oh, no, I wanted the audience to be uncomfortable in that moment you know because this is like a challenging piece of art it's not just like supposed to make people feel good all the time and then the studio bludgeons them with like ah but the data says otherwise so you know we're going to change it and you know we control the purse strings so sorry Uh, so it goes both ways it's it's that double-edged sword it's like it has the potential for utility and for you know maximization and uh, making our lives easier you know, making conveniences, uh, making, giving new people a voice and also for silencing voices and for amplifying, uh, you know, biases, amplifying our, our human biases. Well, and Rob, I was kind of what I was led to think about was, you know, we can't see something if we can't define it in our heads, right? And there's this thing about the Mandela effect where we all saw something that wasn't there like the Bernstein Bears, the Stouffer Stuffing. There's all of these examples in history that people just didn't see what they see. And like the word Febreze is spelled with one E. A lot of people just assume like our brains input things that aren't there. But at the same time, it's the idea that you don't see something until it's maybe been in front of you seven times. There's like a lot of studies behind that. What I see with AI and CB potentially is that it's pulling from a much bigger brain than we have individually so it has a much bigger uh inventory of classifications of what it can see and it's like when you go back and look at a picture that was taken and you see something that you didn't see when you took the picture it's kind of like the photo bomb that somebody does but i'm just curious if if the positive side of cv is that it will allow us to look at things to see things that we can't see with our human brain that the ai brain can then see and dive deeper into because it can think so much faster. Was there anything that you found around that topic? I mean, I guess that's the case in medicine, right? It, it's able to, to determine things that maybe a human doctor may not see and be biased towards. Certainly, yeah. It's uh, Computer vision enables us to spot hidden patterns sometimes. Um, this is kind of counterthetical to the uh, AI snake oil stuff I mentioned, like you can't extract meaning that isn't there, Uh, but you can extract meaning if it's there and it's sort of like noisy and it's hard for us as humans to see. Um, Like we have a really easy time identifying faces. Like we see faces in everything we see. There's a word for this. I forget what it is, but 
you know, we've, we've developed like a heart blood flow analyzer that can just take a sort of x-ray image of the chest and tell you in like 20 seconds, whether or not you have this very special condition, this heart condition um, that used to take like hours, like several hours sitting in a chair uh, with the technician there having to operate it manually. So like if we can speed certain elements of clinical life up by like 200 X, like I'm for that. And it's more accurate than, you know, what a nurse um, sitting there doing it. Like that nurse can be out administering medicine. That's great. Like we can have a computer vision system monitoring someone on a ventilator. Like that's a very passive thing. It's just like, are they struggling and pulling out their breathing tube or are they doing what they're supposed to just like hanging out, um, letting the machine do its thing. Like a nurse doesn't need to be sitting there just watching the whole time. You know, if, like if, a, if we can use computer vision to like sound the alarm when there's a child drowning in your pool, that's better than nothing, right? Like that's better than no lifeguard by a long shot, <laughs> you know, like, uh, so there are these, these arenas where like certainly, uh, does that, what was the question again? <laughs> it wasn't, uh, it was more just a, like zooming way out, more of a philo philosophical view that I do believe in the things I've read and heard and that, that we don't see things as we, as they are often, we see things as we want to see them. And I think that AI has the ability to filter, to fix that because it's, you know, you can't tell if you tell a lie enough times, people start to believe it. Right. Um, AI yeah. I think should be used to fact check every president, every statement, every like, to a certain extent, people are not held to fact-checking like AI has ability to do. So I just, I think even with just, it, it does clear it. And what uh, someone mentioned earlier was, you know, the line Bob was mentioning earlier, where you have a lineup of, of potential criminals, AI will then help prevent people from being falsely accused because there is definite evidence that so-and-so, but you think about all the falsely accused people and people are talking so much about bias and, and things like that. But you have to understand, too, it's also there to protect people from exactly that kind of um, accusations that aren't true. Yes, Bob. I'm curious how everybody feels if the insurance company gets the report of that ailment be, be, and denies your insurance as opposed to the doctor getting it and noticing that you're sick. Now you've got a real problem on your hand. Yeah, this is so my partner works in genetics and she is, you know, concerned with people's uh, privacy. Like she has to discourage people from getting a lot of tests done because the more tests you have done, the more information is out there about your predispositions. And that actually is not protected under uh, any law. Like life insurance companies are free to use that data um, against you or for you or however they want. Uh, we have HIPAA, right? Which protects us in terms of health insurance. Um, you, your genetic information can't be used um, to discriminate against you for like health insurance premiums, but life insurance is still not really under that same umbrella of protection. And we don't want that kind of thing to happen with, with computer vision, right? We, we want our data uh, protected such that it can't be used against us and things like, yeah, credit bureaus, um, you know, health insurance, um, all that stuff, that stuff that's tied to your identity. 
So what like we're doing is, is depending, now no, we're no longer depending on Apple. We're now depending on an insurance company to be ethical and not be driven by dollars. <laughs> well, we, but we can make certain data off limits to them, right? Like, like, well, sure. like how certain evidence can't be used in court. Um, right. But as, as was noted here before, we have rules against running red lights, but I can tell you, my experience as a driver is I always wait for the intersection to clear. <laughs> Not everyone stops for red lights. Right. And automated license plate readers can help, yep. uh, you know, increase like as a bicyclist in Brooklyn, like I get, I don't have a car. I get around everywhere on, on my bike and I, I ride in the street with the garbage trucks and the pickup trucks and, and the big things that can kill me. And so I like it when uh, I'm told like, yeah, there's, there's been a reduction in uh, red light violations because we installed a camera here that automatically tickets people when they run the light. And in fact, it's stricter, it's stricter than most, you know, cops we've posted there on a motorcycle. Like it's, it, it'll get you even if you're just like an inch past the line. Now people are driving more cautiously in the places where I like to navigate my daily life. Well, no, and I do think that the, CV can help prevent save lives out on the road in a big way. Just happened here on the corner. A, a garbage truck ran over a bicyclist and killed him. And apparently all the alerts were going off in the vehicle, but the driver still turned, letting him know that there was a, a biker there. But if the vehicle was prevented and physically stopped because the human was such an idiot that he couldn't hit the brakes, you know, th at that point, I'm all for you know, CV and, and automobile safety, because as a biker too, Rob, I mean, we, you know, that a car that's turning right is the most dangerous place to be. If you're a biker on the right side of a vehicle, they can't see you and you don't, you know, they, they cut that corner sh sharper than you think they do. But um, yeah, I'm, and I just started driving a car that has the lane protection thing where the steering wheel actually will start to turn its way back onto the lane, which is great because as a biker, we're in a bike lane. And it's really sad when you hear a biker get run over when they were in the bike lane in the car, the person was a distracted driver. And that's usually what's happening. Um, really quick, I just want to go around the room. You guys are all so gracious to be here. Ian, did you have any questions that we didn't address that you wanted to ask? Uh, nothing that I can recall. It, 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 they float by really so quickly. All right. <laughs> Thank you for being here, Dina. Helmet. And... Uh, Robert, Robert, anything? Um, I have a comment. I okay, guess, uh, Robert's got a comment. Just in general, <clears throat> earlier we were talking about problems, <coughs> excuse me, uh, problems with artificial intelligence and, you know, that they're, uh, that, that it causes potential problems in a whole lot of different areas. And, and then I was kind of listening and it, it seemed like we talked about the good things, but the good things for the most part, they weren't necessarily trivial, but they were much smaller and important than what the big things were. You know, the big things are like, you know, drones dropping bombs in, in other countries or things like that, or robots, you know, that are just walking around shooting everybody. I, I don't talk about that, but uh, I just wanted to mention that my, my view anyway is that the potential for artificial intelligence is enormous and it's enormous Sure, in the bad parts, but in the good parts. And we have some huge problems right now. Uh, for example, the climate problems. You know, where our world is deteriorating rapidly underneath us. And, and we're not really able to do a lot because, for one thing, everybody argues about what to do and so forth. I think that's one area where, an, an example, of somewhere where AI could actually make a big difference. 
And in fact, it may be our only hope to, because the AI can do things like, well, just as a, an example, you could have an AI and CD system that is able to recognize pieces of plastic in the ocean, right? So you send this drone out there and it cleans up the ocean, you know? I mean, it, it scales up. It's not people doing it. And what I'm saying is that you could come up with solutions to the big problem with AI. And I think that is makes it worth all of the effort that we have to put in to protect ourselves from the bad guys and from the mistakes and from the immaturity of AI, basically. Uh, so I, I just wanted to comment. That. Good just, comment. Yeah, I agree with you. We don't want to focus on the fear. We want to focus on the, the reality that it could do a great deal to save us from ourselves. <laughs> the fear is important too, though. Uh, you know, let's, let's not forget that if we build a, a robot, you know, to go collect the plastic in the ocean, it's it's like if we're not careful, it'll clean up the all the octopi too, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. let's just be careful as we go. Right, John. Yeah, I think there's two branches. One of them is AI being used on technical things such as reading C, CT data for helping doctors make a diagnosis. And that's more of a physical attribute of AI that I think is welcomed and needed in society. On the other hand, there's all this other nefarious potential where you're going to have somebody's voice being presented so you can send me money so I can say something, you know. Um, and that is a more difficult question to answer. How do you regulate that? The physical aspect of it is going to be regulated, uh, self-regulating by whether it's uh, efficient and efficacious and all of those things. And if it's not, then the people that are using that are going to dump it or change. On the social side of things, we have a debate about what truth is. That's <laughs> difficult to ascertain. Um, and that truth, if it can be shaped right. uh, with AI nefariously or a good way, then, yeah, I don't know how you get there. You don't believe what you see on the Internet. That's what I will tell you right now. Bill, any last cut words? Or just, I, very much like what Robert was saying about the, the good part of, of AI and, and focusing on that, because I think one of the potential good aspects of AI and CV uh, is that the requirements to have intelligent regulations will require us to be more humane in our humanity. To, I think to come together as people in finding the good that you were talking about that should be, and I think hopefully can be predominant. I think that's a positive aspect of, uh, of CV as it, as it develops. It forces us to engage with our humanity if we're going to go forward positively. Yeah, it's just, it's a new tool in our arsenal and we, we can use it for good or bad, but um, it's good to be aware of all these. Well, Rob, we went over the hour. I appreciate you making time for us. Um, I do recommend people check out this book. It's only still a buck on Kindle if people want to get it electronically. That's a nice move for the environment. Um, otherwise, it's available in paperback. And any final words you want to share as the author? Um, don't forget to touch grass, kids. You know, we get out there and experience the world. Uh, don't get too hung up on, on AI. <laughs> you know, what's, what's next? So you said you have this potential job. Is there anything else you're working on? Um, I was working on a film slate detector, actually, because I used to work in dailies. Uh, 
which is where you kind of pre-process a lot of the footage for the editor of the film. Um, you know, <laughs> that's that's an exciting thing for me is like building a you know computer vision object detector to automate my old job. Uh, but other uh, resources people might be interested in uh, deep fakes and the the approaching infocalypse info apocalypse. That's another title out there that uh, it's kind of in the same vein. If you're uh, curious how deep fakes might shape society and uh, how we can prevent that. That's, that's another another read worth looking into. I will uh, make a note of that. Info apocalypse. The uh, yeah, deep fakes and the coming infocalypse. Oh, infocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, created a new word. Yeah. Uh, look at uh, the journalist uh, Kashmir Hill and her work. She's she's up to date on what's happening in, in the computer vision and society. Uh, and lastly, uh, look at what the ACLU is doing in, in uh, Massachusetts. They're doing some very interesting stuff in helping craft uh, common sense regulations around uh, computer vision and society. Well, I appreciate you bringing all of this to our attention. Bob, any final words as the president of SoftTech? No, none for me. Asked if I went along. All right, you guys, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Rob. We'll be in touch. Thank you. Till next Rob, time. See you guys. Brian. Thank you for listening to Tech Reads, sponsored by SoftTech. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and share it with your colleagues. If you have comments, questions, or want to suggest an author for a future episode, visit SoftTech at softec.org and click on the Tech Reads link.